Hello, and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Julia. Hi, Lauren. Man, uh, we've got a busy week this week. Absolutely. A lot going on. (laughs) And uh, I know you've got a lot going on with your very active baby. (laughs) (laughs) Who uh, is basically a hurricane at this point. Mm. Anything that you don't want her to touch, that's what she's going after. (laughs) Uh, Everything you don't want her to imbibe or put in her mouth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I would love it if she would stop tearing the leaves off my plants and trying to eat them. (laughs) That would would be cool. I really feel like babies just insist on dying. (laughs) Just like, why won't you let me die? Uh, I have to shut the door to the downstairs bathroom now because she likes to eat toilet paper. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) She's like a mouse. A mice yeah. like that. Yeah, Aww. she's. it's a good thing she's cute. Um, <laughs> yeah, as Lauren, as Lauren alluded to, um, if you haven't been spammed totally by our social media accounts, um, this Thursday, April 22nd at 7 p.m. Eastern, we are co-hosting a trivia night for the Strong Museum here in Rochester mm-hmm. to celebrate the upcoming um, inductees into the World Video Game Hall of Fame. That will be the first week of May. So um, anyway, it's technically video game trivia, but it's also for non-gamers. So mm-hmm. it, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. We'd love to see you there. Um, there's links on our social media and from the museumofplay.org website that you can get your tickets. And I can attest as someone who has seen the questions and uh, also as someone who has mm, never picked up a video game controller that wasn't like a Wii stick. See, I don't even remember what the see, name that of that counts, though. Sure, a but like stick. a Wii stick, right? <laughs> not it that's, that's not something it. else that's not it. <laughs> i can't believe i did that um yeah as someone who has never played a donkey kong or a mario brother um <laughs> the questions are definitely gettable via other routes so you don't have to be a video game person to enjoy this quiz so i'm i'm very excited about it. i think we're gonna have a really good time so yeah so we hope we see you guys there yeah uh, so yeah, our topic this week, sorry, it's not going to help you for, for video game quiz on Thursday. <laughs> so sorry. Um, Do your own research. We're, we're basically heading back to civics class. Oh boy. Uh, it's been a while since we've covered, I don't know, any branch of the U.S. government. <laughs> Quite some have time, we ever? in fact. We have. We have. Okay, okay, okay. Um, so yeah, this week. We are going to be talking all about the Supreme Court of the United States. It'd be great to be on the Supreme Court, but you'll never be on the Supreme Court. There's truly no chance of that happening. And I need to say up front, a huge portion of this episode's research was actually (laughs) provided to me in advance by one of our listeners, Landon. Um, So thank you so very much, Landon. Uh, So he gave me some really great information about the courts and a lot of um, important cases that often get Mm. cited, landmark cases. So that's some of the stuff that we're going to be covering in this episode. Oh, exciting. So to start, some general information about the Supreme Court or um, Supreme Court of the United States is also abbreviated as SCOTUS. Mm -hmm. So I might throw that in here every now and then, make it sound like I have some inside information. 
So the Supreme Court was formed under Article 3 of the U.S. Constitution with its first appointments in 1789. So Article 3, Section 1 reads, quote, the judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. So the framers of the Constitution delineated neither the exact powers and prerogatives of the Supreme Court nor the organization of the judicial branch as a whole. They just kind of set out that it would exist. So we currently have nine Supreme Court justices. There's one chief justice and eight associate justices. This number has fluctuated and is set by statute, not by the Constitution. So in 1789, the court actually had six members. It grew as the country expanded. So Mm -hmm. originally, each Supreme Court justice was associated with a district court. So there were districts in that were regions where the courts Mm -hmm. would happen. So in order to make sure that somebody wasn't getting like, you know, too much work, they, they split them up. So sure. But as the country expanded, we got seven justices in 1807, nine in 1837, and actually 10 in 1863. And then we went back down to seven in 1866. In 1869, the Circuit Judges Act returned the number of justices to nine, where it has since remained. Mm. Um, In 1937, FDR attempted to expand the court again. He wanted to add one additional justice for each incumbent justice who reached 70 years, six months, and refused retirement, up to Mm. a maximum bench of 15 justices. Wow. So this plan is usually referred to as the court packing plan, but it failed Mm. in Congress. So here we are with nine as we have been since 1869. So Mm. being a Supreme Court justice has been called a lifetime appointment, but justices don't have to treat it as one. Fewer than 50 have um, expired while in office. The majority (laughs) retire or or resign. Mm -hmm. So courts are generally referred to by the name of the chief justice. So we are currently in the Roberts Court. I see. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the justices are nonpartisan. Uh, However, there are two generally accepted principles of constitutional interpretation, which happen to align with party views. Conservative justices and politicians tend to take the view that the Constitution words mean what they say and should not be interpreted broader than their ordinary meaning at the time that the words were written. And Mm -hmm. liberal justices and politicians tend to view the Constitution as a living, breathing document that basically allows the words of the Constitution to take on a modern meeting. Yes. We talked about constitutional amendments all the way back in episode 48, I plead mm-hmm. the fifth. So that might have been the last time that we touched upon uh, the judicial it's, branch at all. It's very good. Well, thank you. So the Supreme Court relies on stare decisis. That's essentially the policy to stand by precedent. So that means that past precedent from the court will be applied to the current case so as not to get inconsistent holdings of the court. In Mm. practice, the Supreme Court will usually defer to its previous decisions, even if the soundness of the decision is in doubt. Um, So a benefit of this rigidity is that a court need not continuously reevaluate the legal underpinnings of past decisions and accepted doctrines, but it is a huge deal for a previous case to be overturned. And there have been instances of that. Okay. 
The court applies different levels of scrutiny depending on the case. So the level of scrutiny that's applied determines how a court will go about analyzing a law and its effects. It also determines which party, the challenger or the government, has to have the burden of proof. So strict scrutiny requires a compelling governmental interest and the law is narrowly tailored to achieve its results. This tends to apply to cases dealing with race, national origin, religion, and fundamental rights. Mm, There's also intermediate scrutiny. Law must serve an important governmental objective and be substantially related to achieving the objective. And this applies primarily to gender and sex-based discrimination. Mm. And then there's finally rational basis review. So the person challenging the law, not the government, must show that the government has no legitimate interest in the law or there is no reasonable link between a governmental interest and the law. So this tends to apply to discrimination based on age, disabilities, wealth, or felony status. So uh, tends to be the most the most important cases or what we think of tend to tend to be under strict scrutiny. Sure. And as of April 1st, 2021, the current Supreme Court is composed of Chief John Roberts, Clarence Thomas, who is the second ever African-American to serve in the court and the longest serving member of this court. Then mm-hmm. there's Stephen Breyer, Samuel Alito, Sonia Sotomayor, who was the first Hispanic and Latina member of the court. Then Elena Kagan, Neil Gorich, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. So they do, they really do care about seniority on the court, um, mm. how long you've been on the court, how long you've served, and it uh, that determines like your seating arrangements, how oh, okay. people, how things are named, how people are listed in things. So they really do care about that. And if you go to Wikipedia, somebody has been tasked with updating the number of days that every single person oh has been um, on the court. Because every time that I've like gone to go reference something while working on this episode, it you know the the numbers are going up as of this date. Blah 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 blah. blah. As of this date. Blah blah blah. And so. Yeah, oh they care. God. They care about the dates a lot. I mean, just like they're, I'm sure, by the way, that just like people who are super into presidents, <laughs> I can't imagine that there aren't like law nerds that are super into the Supreme oh, Court. Oh, you're absolutely right. There's got to be. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, life is a rich tapestry. It takes all kinds. And there's somebody who is passionate about SCOTUS. And uh, is, is going on every day like, oh, I almost <sighs> forgot to update the Wikipedia page. Because... <laughs> <laughs> There's pretty pretty much been like three three to four times as many uh, justices of the Supreme Court as there has been presidents. So, oh, sure. um, yeah, there's there's a lot to a lot to learn. A lot of a lot of bad guys on the court. A lot of good mm. guys on the court. A lot of firsts. Probably yeah. this is probably worth like some trading card stuff. Maybe we could. That Ooh. could be our like next side hustle is <laughs> Scotus trading cards. Scotus pack. Yeah, the- I'm into it. <laughs> I love it. A pack for the court. Yes. Pack the court. It can be called TM, 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 TM. (laughs) So how would a case get to the Supreme Court? Yeah. So a term of the Supreme Court commences on the first Monday of each October, and it continues until June or early July of the following year. Each term consists of alternating periods of around two weeks known as sittings and recesses. Judges hear cases and deliver rulings during sittings, and they discuss cases and write opinions during recesses. Certain cases that have not been considered by a lower court may be heard by the Supreme Court in the first instance under what is termed original jurisdiction. 
Mm. I'll summarize here, but the relevant constitutional clause essentially states that the only cases that can go straight to the Supreme Court are cases with ambassadors, public ministers, and consuls in matters with a named U.S. state. Examples of such cases include the 1892 case of United States versus Texas. That was a case to determine whether a parcel of land belonged to the U.S. or to Texas. And Virginia versus Tennessee, a case about whether an incorrectly drawn boundary between two states can be changed by a state court and whether the setting of the correct boundary requires congressional approval. Very exciting stuff. Wow. Yeah, that's like very <laughs> it's thrilling and settling. Uh, well, don't yeah, worry. I mean, don't worry. Not. We'll talk about some fun stuff in a, in a minute. <laughs> so all other cases must go through other courts and apply to appear before the Supreme Court. So in general, this is done by filing a case with a district court. Once a determination has been made at the district level, a litigant can seek a review of that matter from the relevant court of appeals. There are only 13 of these courts of appeals. And generally, the appeals court is looking at a very narrow matter. Mm-hmm. After a determination is made at the appeals level, the litigants can file a petition for writ of certiorari. In other words, a request that the court review this case or more specifically a question that arises in this case oh sure okay so you might not say i need you to overturn my conviction of robbing the stagecoach for all the gold but you might say this one thing happened in the case and i feel like this is unconstitutional so Mm -hmm. that's where it comes in i'm obviously yeah, you're making Flying up by a the scenario. Seat of my pants right now, but there will be a good example provided to us by Landon in a minute. So, courts of appeals in the Supreme Court don't hear new facts in cases; they just review the record before them from the lower court. So, in a gross oversimplification, the Supreme Court also limits its scope of review to federal and constitutional issues. The mm. same case can go to the Supreme Court multiple times. Here's a good example of this provided to us by Landon. So misinformation podcast, uh, Julia and Lauren sue the state of New York and the United States District Court for the Western District of New York because of a new law that says women are not allowed to host a podcast without (gasps) buying a license. The judge in that case dismissed it because the statute of limitations had passed on the time that you have to file the case. And this is one of those pesky technicalities. So misinfopod et al. (laughs) Appeals the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit arguing arguing that the judge got it wrong or alternatively that the law's statute of limitations is unconstitutional. The Court of Appeals receives briefs from the parties and issues an opinion that the district court judge was correct in their dismissal and the opinion of the lower court is upheld. Miss Infopod et al. then petitions the Supreme Court to review the Second Circuit decision. The Supreme Court agrees to hear the case, does so, and issues an opinion that the case was incorrectly dismissed. So the case is reversed and remanded to the lower court for further proceedings. Once the district court has held the trial on this, they say that the law is not discriminatory. Miss Infopod again files an appeal with the Second Circuit. This time, the Court of Appeals says that the lower court was wrong and the law is discriminatory. Now, the state of New York petitions the Supreme Court for review, and that is granted. And the Supreme Court affirms the decision of the Court of Appeals, saying that this is clearly discrimination on the basis of sex, which is constitutionally prohibited. Wow. First (laughs) of all, first of all. Landon. That would never happen because Julia and I are always on time with our paperwork. That aside. <laughs> well, you know how, th- you know how like the fine print on things oh, is yeah. sometimes no, like, garbage. you have 24 hours to respond. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't it's know garbage. why it's also like a, a ransom <laughs> note, but. Yeah. But the other thing is, is that it certainly sounds, what it sounds like, at least in this specific instance, is that it's like the Supreme Court is the referee 
for all of the courts in the United States. So they can be like, no, this decision was wrong. Like, no, 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 review the tape. And so the Supreme Court reviews the tape and then they go, actually, this was the, this call was off. You got to start the the quarter over again. I and love so it. They're the- like the Toronto war room. For- <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's perfect. So they're the refs. They are the refs. Great. This is great. Um, so sometimes you'll see a case citation maybe when you're reading an article or something online. Um, mm-hmm. So when you see a case citation, um, they're kind of weird looking. You might wonder how to interpret them. So here's an example. United States v. Jones, 565 U.S. 400, comma, 132 SCT 945, comma, 181 LED 2D 911, parentheses 2012 so (laughs) okay I have no idea what any of that means because I'm not a lawyer but there's an there's a guide to this so the United States v. Jones is the names of the parties in the case so in the Mm -hmm. trial court the first name listed is the plaintiff the party bringing the suit the name following the v is the defendant if the case is appealed, um, so for this example, it is, the name of the petitioner, appellant, is usually listed first, and the name of the respondent, the appellee, is listed second. If the defendant in the trial court case brings an appeal, the defendant's name may be listed first in the appellate case. So, you know, if I was appealing it, it might be Jones v. United States instead. Sure. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned a bunch of numbers you know, 565 U.S. So 565 is the volume number of the reporter's book containing the full text of the court's opinion. Uh, So I said U.S., I said SCT and LED2D. Those are blue book abbreviations for the reporters. So the United States reports, Supreme Court reporter, Supreme Court reports, lawyer's edition containing the court's opinion. And the numbers right after those abbreviations, like when I said 565 U.S. 400. 400 is the first page of the court's opinion in that respective reporter. Um, You might see an incomplete citation. You might see something like 573 U.S. and then like just a couple underlines after that. And that underline means the page number is not yet available in the official reporter, the U.S. reports. Oh, wow. And then finally, in parentheses, you might see a year. That is the year that the case was decided. Mm, So it's just... It's a little bit of shorthand. It's, you know you know how like when we go to a museum now and then they say like accession number 76.11.b4 and we go, oh, well, that came in in 1976 and it was probably mm-hmm. the 11th thing they accessioned that year and blah, 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 because like we know that. Oh, we yeah, know we know that. Yeah, we then know that stuff. The, then once you... <laughs> <laughs> Once you kind of get this and can crack the code, you can kind of figure out, okay, it was from this year. It here's where the people involved. It was in this mm-hmm. court and this court. Here's where the read here's where the um you can find the the reports about it. Here's what page it starts on. Cool. So little crash course there for you. Nice. All right. Let's talk about some notable landmark Supreme Court cases. Please. I am again bringing you back to civics class because a lot of these are ones that we've talked about. And you mm-hmm. might have like a little inkling lodged in your brain about the about this. You're like, I know that's a name I've heard mm-hmm. and it's important for a reason. So we're going to talk about um, some notable cases, what year they were, like a little summary of what happened and why this is important. Mm-hmm. So right off the bat, Marbury versus Madison. 
Mm-hmm. You've heard of this one. I have heard of you this one. You have heard of this one. It's from 1803. So in the transition between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, the Adams administration and Congress created some new courts in the lame duck period. Adams appointed Marbury to be Justice of the Peace in the District of Columbia. And Jefferson's Secretary of State, James Madison, refused to validate or affirm this appointment. So Marbury sued him. Um, Mm. The Supreme Court held that Madison had to confirm the appointment. In this case, the Supreme Court decided that it was the branch in charge of judicial review of constitutional matters and would be the interpreter of the Constitution. So without this case, the Supreme Court would look a lot different. Yeah. Next, Gibbons versus Ogden from 1824. So Gibbons and Ogden were business partners operating steamships between New Jersey and New York City. New York gave a monopoly on this route to Robert Livingston and Robert Fulton. Ogden purchased a license from the monopoly and Gibbons had a federal waterway license. So the partnership ultimately ended. Ogden sued Gibbons to make him stop shipping, saying that the New York permit was valid, but not the federal one. And Gibbons's attorney, who was actually Daniel Webster, who's a, oh know, boy. a guy we should know, um, argued that Congress had the sole power over interstate commerce under the Interstate Commerce Clause of the Constitution. So the Supreme Court agreed that Congress solely has this power. And this interpretation basically allows Congress to regulate, essentially without any restrictions, anything that passes from one state to another. And states cannot interfere with this. Interesting. That's uh, that's a big one, it that's, seems. It is a big one. And it's from <laughs> 1824. <clears throat> wow. All right. Another one you have definitely heard of is Dred Scott v. Sanford from 1857. So Dred Scott was an enslaved person who, through a series of moves, ended up in a free state with his then owner. Scott attempted to purchase freedom, but he never ran away. And Scott sued for freedom under two statutes, one that allowed for suits for wrongful enslavement and another which entitled any person taken to a free state to automatically become free. So Mm. the court held that the U.S. Constitution was not meant to include American citizenship for black people, regardless of whether they were enslaved or free. So the rights and privileges that the Constitution confers upon citizens could not be applied to them. And the Supreme Court went further to say that enslaved persons were property and could not be taken from their owners under the Fifth Amendment. This ended the Missouri Compromise and arguably accelerated events leading up to the Civil War. And the author of this opinion was Chief Justice Taney, who ultimately swore in Lincoln. Uh, So, (laughs) yeah, this is a pretty... Pretty bad case. Yeah, no kidding. All right, moving past the Civil War. Plessy versus Ferguson from 1896. So... Plessy was a black man who sat in a train car reserved for white people, which was required under the Separate Car Act. He refused to leave and was arrested. He sued that the law violated equal protection, and the court held the constitutionality of racial segregation laws for public facilities as long as the segregated facilities were equal in quality, and that is what came to be known as separate but equal. Oh, so that's where that came that's from. That's where they came from, Plessy versus Ferguson, wow. and it uh, stuck around for another seven decades or so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, next, Wickard v. Filburn from 1942. 
During the Great Depression, the Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1938 restricted how much wheat could be grown by any individual. And the Department of Agriculture fined Roscoe Filburn because his farm exceeded the maximum allowable wheat growth. Filburn sued, arguing that Congress didn't have the authority to regulate this because maybe he didn't plan to sell all of that wheat. Yeah. The Supreme Court held that Congress did have the authority to regulate commerce that only occurs within states if it can impact interstate commerce. And this decision dramatically increased the regulatory power of the federal government and set a precedent for an expansive reading of the Constitution's Commerce Clause for decades to come. Wow. So. Dang. Mm-hmm. We're getting a lot more uh, commerce friendly, shall we say. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right, next, Korematsu versus the United States from 1944. So in the aftermath of Imperial Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Roosevelt issued Executive Order 9066 on February 19, 1942, authorizing the War Department to create military areas from which any or all Americans might be excluded. As a result, the Western Defense Command, a U.S. Army military command charged with coordinating the defense of the West Coast, ordered, quote, all persons of Japanese ancestry, including aliens and non-aliens, end quote, to relocate to internment camps. So a 23-year-old Japanese-American man named Fred Korematsu refused to leave the exclusion zone and instead challenged the order on the grounds that it violated the 14th Amendment. Uh, Supreme Court held that the need to protect against espionage exceeded the rights of Japanese-American citizens. And this is mm. widely regarded as one of the worst decided cases in the yeah. history of the Supreme Court. Uh, the dissent in this case was outraged with the blatant racism of the case. And it is one of a very few effectively overturned. But that actually didn't even happen until 2018 in Trump v Trump versus Hawaii. That was um, which people might recognize as the Muslim ban case. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, it, I mean, like, f yeah, clearly for decades, people were like, this was yeah yikos but effectively not overturned until 2018 jeez i had no idea huh. yeah um 10 years later we get the brown versus board of education of topeka that is in yes. 1954 so we've all heard of this one linda brown a black third grader had to walk six blocks to her school bus stop to ride to monroe elementary her segregated black school that was one mile away while a white elementary school was located much closer to her house. Uh, the Browns and several other local black families in similar situations filed a class action lawsuit in U.S. federal court against the Topeka Board of Education, alleging that its segregation policy was unconstitutional. Uh, SCOTUS held that separate schools were inherently unequal and required nationwide desegregation. And with this, Plessy versus Ferguson, that was separate but equal, was partially overturned. Um, mm. And by the way, uh, one of the members of the court for this, um, who actually, he joined the court's majority opinion in this case, uh, was Justice Hugo Black, who was a member of the KKK. What? What? Yeah. He's on the list of like, not so great guys that yeah, were members yeah. of the court. Yeah. To FYI. say the very least. Mm -hmm. Yep. Damn. All right. Uh, next is MAP versus Ohio. Uh, M-A-P-P. -P. So this is from 1961. While looking for a bombing suspect around Cleveland, Ohio, police came to search the home of Dalry Mapp. Uh, she asked if they had a search warrant and was shown a piece of paper that was later revealed not to be a warrant. Hey! Um, so the police found <laughs> pornographic books in her home and she was arrested for, quote, knowingly having had in her possession and under her control certain lewd and lascivious books, pictures, and photographs. Big deal. <laughs> Who doesn't? 
Am I right, ladies? It's like they wanted to get her on something. It's like she's yeah, exactly. associated with a mobster in some some fashion, which is yeah. why the police came to her home in the first place looking for a bombing suspect. But so, you know, SCOTUS ended up holding that the search was unlawful under the Fourth Amendment yeah. and the, the, that the exclusionary rule, which prevents prosecutors from using evidence in court that was obtained by violating the Fourth Amendment, applies not only to U.S. federal government, but also to the U.S. states. So you can't show a fake search warrant. You can't be like, yep. Here, I, I just imagine that CBS it's like. CVS receipt. Like, yeah, yeah. I'm imagining it's a piece of lined paper in red crayon that just yeah. says warrant with one R. <laughs> the R is backwards. Yeah, the R is backwards. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Engel versus Vital from 1962. So New York State required schools to adopt a daily prayer and several individuals sued arguing that the prayers violated the students' First Amendment rights. And the Supreme Court agreed, holding that state-enforced prayer or other religious rights are in violation of the Establishment Clause. So you might hear mm-hmm. that cited frequently. Yeah. All right. Uh, Gideon versus Wright. This is a hard word for me to say with my... <laughs> I don't know. Impediment. <laughs> what's what's the word? Wainwright. Wainwright. Yeah. So Gideon versus Wainwright from 1963. Clarence Earl Gideon was charged with breaking and entering the Bay Harbor pool room in Panama City, Florida. Gideon requested an attorney, but that was denied to him, and he was mm. forced to conduct his own defense in court, emphasizing his innocence in the case. The jury returned a guilty verdict, and he was sentenced to serve five years in the state prison. Gideon first filed a petition for a writ of habeas corpus in the Supreme Court of Florida, claiming that his Sixth Amendment right had been violated because the judge refused to appoint counsel. Mm. SCOTUS unanimously held that all criminal defendants are entitled to an attorney, even if they cannot afford one. As yes. anybody who has watched Law and Order for the last Absolutely. three decades is well aware. Mm-hmm. So, yes, they're saying that, you know, the Sixth Amendment is you have right to you have right to counsel. You have right to a uh, jury of your own peers. And mm-hmm. um, in this case, he was not given it. And SCOTUS has ruled that all criminal defendants are entitled to an attorney. Yeah. Another one that we all know because of Law and Order, uh, Miranda versus Arizona from 1966. So Ernesto Miranda was arrested by the Phoenix Police Department based on circumstantial evidence linking him to the kidnapping and rape of an 18-year-old woman 10 days earlier. After two hours of interrogation by police officers, Miranda signed a written confession without being advised of his right to have an attorney present. Uh, SCOTUS held that law enforcement must advise detainees of their right to remain silent, right to an attorney, and anything said can be used against them in court. Statements obtained without this warning can be excluded from court, and it has had a significant impact on law enforcement in the U.S. by making what became known as the Miranda Warning part of routine police procedure to ensure the suspects are informed of their rights. Mm. One that's, I guess, a little happier. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Loving versus Virginia. Oh, yes. So Richard Loving, a white man, married Mildred Jeter, a black woman, at a time when interracial marriages were against the law in Virginia. They were both sentenced to a year in prison for marrying each other. What? Uh, That is so, (laughs) like, I'm sorry. That's just, what year was this? 1967? Yes, 1967. That's too soon. That's like too. Yeah. (laughs) That's like, that's. 
it's in our parents' lifetimes. Yeah, that's out of control. So the Lovings appealed their conviction to the Supreme Court of Virginia, which upheld it. And they then appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, which agreed to hear their case. So SCOTUS held that the law was unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment because, quote, the freedom to marry or not marry a person of another race resides with the individual and cannot be infringed by the state. Yeah. Great. Duh. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, Brandenburg versus Ohio from 1969. Clarence Brandenburg made racist and violent remarks at a KKK rally in Ohio, and he was arrested under a state law criminalizing violent speech. He appealed, arguing a violation of his First Amendment rights. SCOTUS agreed, holding that the government cannot punish inflammatory speech unless that speech is, quote, directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to incite or produce such action. In Hmm. other words, Abstract discussions are not the same as preparation for violence. So maybe remember this. <laughs> remember this case as precedent. Yeah. Just saying. For maybe a future thing. Just saying. Just saying. All right. Another one we've all heard of, uh, Roe v. Wade from 1973. So in this case, Norma McCorvey, who was known in the lawsuit under the pseudonym Jane Roe, lived in Texas, which had a law restricting abortions to those only required to preserve the life of the mother. SCOTUS held that the government's abortion restrictions were unconstitutional as a violation of the woman's right to privacy in their decisions. Mm hmm. Next, the Regents of University of California versus Backey from 1978. So a white dude uh, sued the University of California for reverse racism when he was rejected for medical school due to 16 minority students being admitted into a class of 100. So he was... Bakey's racism claim hinged that his grades were better than some of the minority students who were admitted. And SCOTUS held that Bakey should be admitted, but also paved the way for race to be taken into account in admissions decisions to promote diversity on campus. In other words, allowing for affirmative action to take place. I see. Okay. Uh, in 1984, we have Chevron v. National Resource Defense Council. So Congress amended the Clean Air Act to reduce power plant emissions under a new source review. The EPA broadcast rules to change the definition of a source of pollution from basically requiring a review for every change to looking at the entire plant as a whole. And the NRDC said that this reduced the effect of the law because viewing the plant as a whole allowed plants to modify parts so that the overall emission was not changed. So that's Mm -hmm. like, you know, uh, say... Your car, basically your car gets inspected every year. Yes. But they look at all of the pieces, you know? Mm -hmm. So this would be as if they changed the law saying like, you could just, you could just look at the outside of the car. Yeah. You don't have to like look under the hood. As long as you think it's still fine on the outside, it's okay. Yeah. Does this car look like it puts out a lot of toxic gases? No. No? Okay, Okay. great. Sign off. You passed. (laughs) So (laughs) SCOTUS held that if a law is clear, administrative agencies must follow the law. If the Mm -hmm. law is not clear, courts must defer to the agency's interpretation. So Mm. this apparently is a very mundane but important and very frequently cited case. So I believe it. Yeah. Yep. All right. uh, Next, in 2003, we have Lawrence v. Texas. So Lawrence was arrested in Texas when the police entered his residence and found him sleeping with another man. Texas had a law on the books forbidding sex with somebody of the same 
sex. And um, Lawrence appealed the sentence on the basis of the 14th Amendment. And SCOTUS held that the law violated the due process clause of the 14th Amendment and the individual's right to private sexual activity. So it's no longer a law to have... Two thousand three. Yep, like it's mind blowing to me the amount of stuff that was finally settled mm-hmm. so late. Like stuff. It's that, true. Yeah, oh. and we'll get to a couple more of those. Oh, good, good. I can't <laughs> wait to be furious. Um, so NFIB versus Sibelius is in twenty twelve. That's the National Federation of Independent Business sued Kathleen Sibelius, who was then the Secretary of Health and Human Services, to mm-hmm. overturn the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act commonly called Obamacare, in two parts. First, the individual mandate, and second, forcing states to expand Medicaid coverage or lose funding. So SCOTUS held that the individual mandate was within the taxation powers of Congress, whereas the expanded coverage was overly coercive and struck down. So a little bit each, but we've lived through this one. Yeah. In 2013, we have United States versus Windsor. So Edith Windsor married her wife, Thea Spire, in Toronto in 2007 after 40 years of partnership. They moved to New York State, which recognized the marriage. When Windsor's wife died in 2009, she attempted to claim a tax exemption for surviving spouses, and the exemption was blocked due to the Defense of Marriage Act. So SCOTUS held that the Defense of Marriage Act was unconstitutional under due process and equal protection. The court held that the Constitution prevented the federal government from treating state-sanctioned heterosexual marriages differently from state-sanctioned same-sex marriages, Mm -hmm. and that such differentiation demeaned the couple whose moral and sexual choices the Constitution protects. Which leads us to, two years later, Obergefell versus Hodges in 2015. So this actually wasn't one lawsuit, but the consolidation of six lower court cases, originally oh. representing 16 same-sex couples from a variety of states. They sued due to states' failure to recognize same-sex marriage. The Supreme Court ruled that the fundamental right to marry is guaranteed to same-sex couples by both the Due Process Clause and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. The ruling requires all 50 states, the District of Columbia, and the insular areas to perform and recognize the marriages of same-sex couples on the same terms and conditions as the marriages of opposite-sex couples with all the accompanying rights and responsibilities. Which, again, great, but... 2015. 2015. And I'm pretty pretty sure that Ireland, the most Catholic of all the countries, I would make the argument, (laughs) uh, uh, like gave the A-OK to same-sex marriage before we did. Which is like, come on. It's true. But we got there. Yeah, we got there. We got there. And as, as we know, things are still being decided all the time that... Oh, Yeah. I'm yep. just gesturing. I'm just, just gesturing, gesturing into the into the void <laughs> into the right ether. now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, those were just just 20 cases I just wanted to to mention. Bring Great. up, put back into your old brain box, and I, now I have some bonus SCOTUS trivia. Bonus SCOTUS. Bonus oh, SCOTUS trivia. So this is basically why I included it because I was like, yeah, I have a title for this section. Okay. TM, TM, so. TM. As we all know, William Howard Taft, he was the only president to serve also on the Supreme Court, taking the oath of office as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in July 1921. In his new position, Taft became the first and only person to lead two branches of the federal government and the only former president to swear in subsequent presidents. He swore in um, Calvin Coolidge and Herbert Hoover. Taft was so happy with his nine years on the bench that he once noted, quote, I don't remember that I was ever president. 
Oh, well, he had a tough go, you know? <laughs> he, he had a tough go. He basically press. just like wanted to be a Supreme Court justice. Yeah. And then Teddy Roosevelt was like, you should run for president because we need somebody um, to follow On me up side. since I'm not allowed to be president again. And then he did it. And then Teddy Roosevelt was like, you bastard. I'm so mad that you were <laughs> such a bad president. And then he just got he got to the Supreme Court. He did. He, he fulfilled he his. He got a stream. Yep, he did. Um, two SCOTUS justices have appeared on U.S. currency. And I... And I feel like currency, U.S. currency questions come up a trivia all the time. And yeah. these are two guys whose bills are not in circulation today. So it's hard to remember. So John Marshall was on the $500 bill and Salmon P. Chase was on the $10,000 bill. Salmon like the fish? Yes. We've talked about him before. <laughs> I'm sure. And you know what? I probably said, probably the, said the same, same thing. thing. Yeah. Ugh. Salmon P. Who? Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm so unoriginal, honestly. I just keep recycling the same 12 jokes over and over again. (laughs) (laughs) Really, really giving everybody a peek behind the curtain. That's all the podcasting is, as far as I'm concerned. That's just the same 12 jokes. 16 stories? Great. Which one are you going to tell this week? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) All right. uh, President George Washington appointed 11 justices, which was more than any other president, which, you know, again, they were establishing the court at the time, et cetera. Makes sense. Uh, Jimmy Carter is actually the only president who served a full term who never nominated a Supreme Court justice. Well, he's just a humble peanut farmer. I know. He doesn't want to get involved in all that. No. In all that mumbo jumbo up there on the Supreme <laughs> Court. Um, so I love this. Uh, the case Nix versus Hedden from 1893 determined that under U.S. Customs Regulations. Ready? Yeah. The tomato should be classified as a vegetable rather than a fruit. victory and so that was 1893 in 2005 supporters in the new jersey legislature cited this case as the basis for a bill designating the tomato as the official state vegetable of new jersey of course because you know new jersey doesn't have anything better to do (laughs) think of all those italians that just i know just want to but i wanted them is my vegetable (laughs) uh new york state doesn't have a state vegetable i looked it up uh, what? But you know how we we keep jagging on this state for some of its weird decisions. Like yeah. the state muffin is the apple muffin and our so state stupid. snack is yogurt. Um, <laughs> do you know what our state dog is, Lauren? Oh, my God. Um, something loud and obnoxious like a beagle. Is that it? <laughs> no. Ready? The state dog is the working dog. No, that's not a dog. That's not a dog. That's a that is a category of dog. Yes. Our state dog is working dog. No. Bullshit. Take it to the Supreme Court. We're getting a real dog breed. We're getting a real dog. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, because if I didn't mention it, we would get we would get mentions in our lunches about this Mm -hmm. uh the top floor of the supreme court building houses a gym which does include a basketball court dubbed the highest court in the land and it is literally directly above the actual supreme court room so nobody is allowed to play basketball while court is in session (laughs) while court is in session wink and a wink could you imagine that would really bring down the whole like gravitas of it if you heard somebody just like, just like thunk, buckets, thunk, <laughs> thunk. Yeah. Yeah. Kobe. <laughs> R.I.P. All 
great. That's it. That was your that was Yay. your trip back to civics class. That was awesome. Thank you so much, Landon, for all of your your wonderful effort and work. Yes, and uh, we, we hope- super appreciate it. And um, you know what? It makes our lives a lot easier when somebody oh uh, gives us a bunch of notes already. <laughs> Not yeah. Hey, you know what? If you have a topic and you don't want to listen to yourself talk, send your notes over. We'll do it. <laughs> uh, I'm happy to be, Julie and I are happy to be mouthpieces for your research. <laughs> and we will always give credit because we are historians. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so on a taking a real big turn, we're not talking about legal cases here. Our quiz is called The Case of the Mysterious Podcast Quiz. This is a quiz on famous fictional female sleuths. Ooh. Question one. As cool as Matahari and as sweet as Betty Crocker, which er girl sleuth made her debut in the 1930 novel The Secret of the Old Clock? Question two. A is for alibi, P is for podcast. Which Santa Teresa dwelling private investigator is the protagonist of Sue Grafton's Alphabet Mysteries series of best-selling novels? Question three. A long time ago, we used to be friends, but I haven't thought of you lately at all. So begins the theme song to which teen noir mystery drama set in Neptune, California that aired on UPN, then The CW, and then Hulu? Question four. Precious Ramatswe and her assistant Grace Makutsi are the main characters in which series of novels by Alexander McCall Smith? The country of Botswana is essentially also a character figuring prominently in the stories. Question 5. Detective Chief Inspector Jane Tennyson is played by Helen Mirren in what London-based police procedural which first aired in 1991? Question 6. Another series of teen girl detective mysteries launched with The Secret of the Mansion in 1948 and ended with The Mystery of the Galloping Ghost in 1986. This heroine, whose given name was Beatrix, lived just outside the fictional town of Sleepyside on Hudson in New York. What's the name of this detective who manages to find mystery wherever she goes, solving cases with her best friend, Honey Wheeler? Question 7. Phryne is the first name of the titular character in Australian author Carrie Greenwood's series of novels set in the late 1920s. What is the name of the television series starring Essie Davis as this wealthy, aristocratic, flapper, private detective who solves all manner of crimes, not just homicides? Question 8. On Brooklyn Nine-Nine, badass detective Rosa Diaz takes pride in the fact that no one knows much about her personal life. As revealed throughout the course of the series, tell me if each of the following four statements are true or false. First, she studied ballet at the American Ballet Academy as a teenager. She adores a Nancy Myers style kitchen. She has brunch friends who encourage her to use Instagram to promote her handmade jewelry line. And finally, she just wants to see Lorelai Gilmore happy. Question 9. A high-flying YA series by Nancy Springer spotlights which protagonist? The 14-year-old sister of an already famous consulting detective in Victorian-era England. And finally, question 10. The true question of our time. Mr. Information refused to answer it. The American police detective procedural Cagney and Lacey, which aired from 1982 to 1988, starred Sharon Gless and Tyne Daly. Of these two actresses, 
who played Cagney and who played Lacey. I'll give you about a minute to think and then we'll be back with your answers. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I'm mad at myself for a lot of these. Um, uh, okay, I'll think about it. I'll try and think. I will try and think. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. think, which is what I'm good at most of the you time. You can think. Do you want a whole minute to think? <laughs> like everybody else gets a whole yeah, minute Like everybody to think. gets a whole minute, at least. <laughs> It'll come to me, I All think. Right. All right. Question one. As cool as Matahari and as sweet as Betty Crocker, which Ur Girl Sleuth made her debut in the 1930 novel, The Secret of the Old Clock? Um, that's Nancy Drew. Of course it's Nancy Drew. Of course it's Nancy Drew. The character was conceived by Edward Stratemeyer, who also created the Hardy Boys series. Stratemeyer began writing plot outlines and hired Mildred Wirt to ghostwrite the first volumes in the series under the pseudonym Carolyn Keene. Subsequent titles have been written by a number of different ghostwriters, all under that pen name. The character proves continuously popular worldwide, selling at least 80 million copies of the books. Uh, it's been translated into over 45 languages. Nancy Drew is featured in five films, three television shows, Shows and dozens of popular computer games through her interactive. Question two. A is for alibi. P is for podcast. Which Santa Teresa dwelling private investigator is the protagonist of Sue Grafton's Alphabet Mysteries series of best-selling novels? Um, I never only read them. know about this because I've never read them, but I think I know this because of you. Okay. Is her name Stephanie Plum? Is Ooh, that it? That's the... That's the um, Janet Ivanovich series. Is oh shoot! <laughs> yeah, damn, Close. I got the wrong one. Then I don't. Re- then you're, I don't remember. You, you're in the same brain space. Uh, um, the this invest this this character's name is Kinsey Milhone. Oh, sh- I wasn't going to get there. Mm, okay. No, no. So the Alphabet Mysteries series is set in 1980s California. The first novel, A is for Alibi, was published in 1982. They were released close to every year than every other year up until Y is for Yesterday in 2017. Mm-hmm. And Grafton passed away that year. She had been planning the 26th and final title in the series to be Z is for Zero. On Grafton's death in 2017, her daughter indicated that the final installment was unwritten. The family would not hire a ghostwriter, stating that, quote, oh. as far as we are in the family concerned, the alphabet now ends at Y. 
Oh, that's sad. Yeah. That's sad. Yeah, yep. I remember hearing about that. She had, she didn't get a chance to finish it. I got to really tell sad. you, that was the first thing I thought. I was like, she didn't publish Z yet. <laughs> uh, I'm a bitch. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you're a bitch, I'm a bitch. It's okay. <laughs> Question three. A long time ago, we used to be friends, but I haven't thought of you lately at all. So begins the theme song to which teen noir mystery drama set in Neptune, California that aired on UPN, then the CW, then Hulu. Is this Veronica Mars? It is Veronica Mars. I I have not watched a single second of that television show. And I know people are absolute. My college boyfriend was like crazy about it. I just never got a chance to watch it at all. Well, what am I going to say? I know. You should. I know. I got a a Neptune poster in my living room. Um, It clearly, it stars Kristen Bell as the titular character, a student who progresses from high school to college while moonlighting as a private investigator under the tutelage of her detective father, Keith Mars. In each episode, Veronica solves a different standalone case while working to solve a more complex mystery. It's, it's terrific. And again, when you start watching it, it's like starts in like 2004. So the fashion and like the references oh. and the music is just mm. all very like mid aughts and just I love it. You know, very special. <laughs> very special. <laughs> very special for a very specific set of millennials. Yes. All right, question four. Precious Ramatswe and her assistant Grace Makutsi are the main characters in which series of novels by Alexander McCall Smith? The country of Botswana is essentially also a character figuring prominently in the stories. This book, I when I was working at Schmarns and Bubble, I, we could not keep this book in the store. I remember looking at the cover of this book. It's very colorful. Its predominant colors are orange and yellow. Um, It has a very African graphic design to it. They were crazy popular. There's like several books in this series. And I'm trying to... You're doing great. I'm trying to remember the name of it. Hold on. Detective Agency. The the number one ladies detective agency. Yay! 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 You got it. And it's like no period one, you know, number one ladies detective agency. Number one ladies detective agency. So Ma Ramatswe (laughs) is the first female private investigator in Botswana and she considers herself traditionally built. I love that. Oh, Um, that's cute. After her first few cases, she purchases a book by Clovis Anderson called The Principles of Private Detection. And then she quotes from it throughout the novels when a guide (laughs) is needed for deciding next steps. She'd be like, well, Clovis Anderson says we need to do this. So she uses her grit, common sense, and womanly instinct to solve community mysteries such as missing family members, cheating husbands, and mishaps with witch doctors. I love this series. It's really I never got a chance to love it. it. And it's like a old Scottish man writing this series about this lovely woman and her assistant in Botswana. And they're still publishing it today. I think actually one came out like last year. So um I definitely recommend them. They're not like scary murder mysteries. Mm -hmm. They're like very sweet like cozies. um, yeah, they are. They are. Mm-hmm. I'm down for a cozy. I'm not. I'm not proud. I'll read Agatha Christie any day of the week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Speaking of British people, uh, question five: Detective Chief Inspector Jane Tennyson is played by Helen Mirren in what London-based police procedural, which first aired in 1991? This series rules. This is called prime suspect it's available on hulu you all should watch it it's so 90s 
Helen Mirren is luminous and gritty in it. She sets her jaw and she is just, she does not take any guff from any men. No guff. It is fantastic. Oh, Guffless. and the mysteries are rough. They yes. are rough. Yes. I watched a couple Man, of Man, the Brits love a gritty oh. murder arc. They love a child murder. They love a secret, you know, twins who are in love with each other. Like they love the weird, <laughs> the weird shit, you know? So I remember I watched an episode with Steve and I looked at him and he goes, I don't think I can watch this anymore, babe. I can. Like, okay, well, I'll go to those deep, dark places instead of you. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's great, though. You I go play recommend. The Witcher. Uh, yes. Prime Suspect <laughs> ran for seven series, but in true ITV fashion, mm-hmm. that is 15 episodes. <laughs> yep. And there's like, I think like 12 or 13 years between season five and season yeah, six. Yeah, there's a big because, gap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the series follows Helen Mirren's constant battles to prove herself within a male-dominated profession in which many of her colleagues are determined to see her fail. But they won't because she's amazing. Yeah, she's won so many. She won so many awards for that oh, yeah. show too. Yeah. All right. Question six. Another series of teen girl detective mysteries launched with The Secret of the Mansion in 1948 and ended with The Mystery of the Galloping Ghost in 1986. This heroine, whose given name was Beatrix, lived just outside the fictional town of Sleepyside on Hudson in New York. What's the name of this detective who manages to find mystery wherever she goes, solving cases with her best friend, Honey Wheeler? This this doesn't sound familiar to me in the least. I don't think I know. Your mom would your mom would know this. Would she? Yeah, your mom would know this. Well, I mean, she's not here right now to help me out, so <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true i'm just you know passing this along um because i learned this book series because of my mother and i loved it oh, too okay. so this is mm. trixie belden oh i know why do, okay. i don't think i've ever heard of this so trixie belden is basically like the mid-century antithesis of nancy drew um and in fact the original author julie tatham confessed to not liking the character of nancy drew I so mean, while nancy drew lives in a perfect world with plenty of money and uses her father's name to get herself out of trouble trixie belden lives in a world where she has to do housework and odd jobs <laughs> to earn money and has yeah. to rely upon herself to get out of trouble uh she has obnoxious brothers she has to get tutored in math she makes lots of mistakes and so she She's, um, and she's, I think I would argue a lot funnier, uh, than, than Nancy Drew too. So, um, yeah, yeah, this is a, this is a great series. If you can get your hands on any of those, any of these, the Trixie Belton books are great. Uh, they sound great. Cause, uh, like you said, Nancy Drew is just like a little too prissy perfect mm-hmm. and her, her boyfriend, Ned, who doesn't try anything funny ever. And like her best friends who are easily her sidekicks and she just has a, like, like a, a very easy life and it's very boring. It's like the boxcar children. Just yes, super boring characters. Yeah. Yeah. They're the worst. All right. But an ex- another exciting character. Question seven. Phryne is the first name of the titular character in Australian author Carrie Greenwood's series of novels set in the late 1920s. What is the name of the television series starring Essie Davis as this wealthy aristocratic flapper detective who solves all manner of crimes, not just homicides? My good buddy Bill Holoka keeps bothering me to watch this series because he said it's very good. Is this Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries? It is, in fact, Miss Fisher's mm-hmm. Murder Mysteries. Um, it's an Australian drama TV series. And one of the show's producers said, quote, we were a bit curious to know what it was about that could appeal to a 16-year-old and a 70-year-old. Franny is oh. one of the first feminists. 
She chooses to live alone. She chooses not to get married. She's got many lovers. She's a bit of James Bond action hero. She's much better dressed than James Bond, though. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And hey, Friny is spelled P-H-R-Y-N-E. All right, Friny. Mm-hmm. All right, for you, Lauren. Question eight. On Brooklyn Nine-Nine, badass detective Rosa Diaz takes pride in the fact that no one knows much about her private life as revealed throughout the course of the series tell me if each of the following four statements are true or false i'm so ready for this all right she studied ballet at the american ballet academy as a teenager yes yes it's true uh she adores a nancy meyer style kitchen please who doesn't yes yes it's true uh she has brunch friends who encourage her to use instagram to promote her handmade jewelry line i'm gonna say no that was also true Oh, damn it. I'm yep. not finished with the series. Yeah. Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. Ah. spoiler. And uh, last, she just wants to see Lorelai Gilmore happy. I, I think I think I heard her say that. Yes. Yeah, that's also true. Okay. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's great. All right. Question nine. A high flying YA series by Nancy Springer spotlights which protagonist, the 14 year old sister of an already famous consulting detective in Victorian era England. Is this Enola Holmes? It is. Yeah, yes. they made that into a TV show. Yeah, they sure did. So the the premise of it is when their mother disappears, Enola's brothers Sherlock and Mycroft Holmes send her to a finishing school against her will. But with the aid of her mother, who had provided hidden funds and an elaborate cipher for her daughter to communicate with her, Enola runs away to London, where she establishes a clandestine private detective career specializing in missing persons investigations. Sure. And sure. in 2020, the series was adapted into a film with Millie Bobby Brown in the title role in Henry Cavill playing Sherlock Holmes. Oh, I didn't know that. Then, I, yeah. <laughs> then I'm on board. What? What? <laughs> I gotta go. <laughs> Pew! <laughs> and then finally, question 10. The true question of our time, Mr. Information even refused to answer it. The American Police Detective Procedural Cagney and Lacey, which aired from 1982 to 1988, starred Sharon Gless and Tyne Daly. Of these two actresses, who played Cagney and who played Lacey? I I feel like this is a trick question. But I, mean, I think the, like you have a you have a 50-50 shot of getting them in the right order. <laughs> but I will say that I got a lot of uh I got a lot of flack when I worked at the Buffalo News when I got um Nancy and uh what's her name Wilson, the Wilson Anne. sisters. Yeah. And yeah, when I got them mixed up. I you have no idea how many emails I got. So this is something that <laughs> I'm usually not very good at. But I'm going to go with my gut. I'm going to I'm going to listen to my heart. I'm going to say Tyne was Cagney and I'm going to say Sharon was Lacey. Sharon Gless played Christine Cagney and Tyne Bailey played Mary Beth Lacey. <laughs> Zero for two. <laughs> Damn it. So it right. Cagney was apparently a bit quieter and more reserved than her vivacious, talkative, loud partner. Oh, um, Tyne Daly's a dreamboat. If you were Love Josh her. and this were pub quiz, you would have put the same character in both <laughs> answer slots, the same person in both answer slots to get half credit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's Josh's M.O. He does that every time. He doesn't want to. Sp- he doesn't want to roll the dice. He wants to He'll split take the difference. The safe one point. Yeah, exactly. So yes, uh, that was that. And I found online just randomly a detective name generator because you know, oh. like you come across these these names of characters and you're like, 
Yeah. Yeah, of course they're a detective. So let me, I'm just clicking on it right now. Uh, some female detective names. Sarah Eckert, Lillian okay. Winder, Grace oh. Tanner, and Abby Booth. Those are all great. Those are pretty great. great female yeah, detective book names. names. Uh, what else we got? Laura Sanders, Sky Gibson. Ooh, Sky Gibson. Eve Hackman. Great. Ooh, that's good. Yeah. You can say good. that she's related to Jean. Perhaps. Oh, Jean some, was my grandfather. Some male detectives. Um, Hector Darwin. Oh, I'm gonna write that's a book good. about him. Hector Darwin. Uh, George Newton. Oscar mm-hmm. Clark. These are all perfectly great detective names. Fantastic detective so, names. So that was that was fun to jump onto. But I love that. Great. That was awesome. Good job, Jewel. And thank you again, Landon. Thank you. Thank you, Landon. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you, <laughs> listeners. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Moon. Thank yeah, you, I stars. Was gonna say, <laughs> I was going to say, uh, thank you, Bull. Thank you, Brush. <laughs> I've been reading that to Ellie, huh? Uh-huh. Um, yeah, thank you, everybody. And also, just again, a quick reminder, this Thursday, the 22nd at 7 p.m., if you want to join us, please go to uh, strong.org and nope, sign up. That's not the website. But okay. That's not the website? No, it's museumofplay.org. <laughs> I keep forgetting because you guys changed it <laughs> like four years ago and I haven't gotten on board. Museumofplay.org or just Google Strong Museum yeah. of Play events. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or any we, of, we'll have the links on our social media. Yeah, we'll have right the links on too. our social media. Please join us. It'll be super fun. Fundraiser for the Strong Museum of Play. Um, it'll be great. So join us. Thumbs up. Thanks, everybody. Uh, we will you. catch, catch you, next you next time. time. Bye. Bye.